like to say welcome and to it's really wonderful to see so many very familiar faces here that we've done this journey together for 20 years Narayan and I and some of you here and a very warm welcome to those of you who are new to this retreat and I do trust that soon you will feel very at home um, and very at ease. It's always a tremendous delight to teach this retreat. Um, certainly it warms my heart, I must say. So tonight, just like to give something of an introduction to the retreat. Hopefully you're all awake enough to stay with it. <laughs> like to talk a little bit about the, the kind of the container of the practice. I always say that it's so important to understand that we, what we do here is not just about learning a meditation technique, that this mandala of the teaching, Out of this mandala, the actual formal practice of meditation arises. But that mandala of the teaching is really what we're here to understand. The teaching of integrity, the teaching of liberating our hearts, the teaching of connecting with what is most deeply important to us in our lives, the teaching of compassion. This is all the understanding that we really seek to incline our hearts towards. And the formal practice is simply in the service of facilitating that understanding. We might say that really the purpose of mindfulness is to awaken our life. And that the purpose of wisdom is to awaken us from a dream to the simple truths of the moment. That the purpose of loving kindness is to awaken us from alienation and fear. And the purpose of compassion is to awaken us to the reality of suffering and the possibility of its healing. And this theme of awakening is what is central to the teaching, and it is what is central to our own practice. I'd like to read you one of my very favorite poems by Mary Oliver. It's called The Buddha's Last Instruction. And some of you will be familiar with this. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solitaries, And he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. 
Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. And he said, make of yourself a light. One of the reasons I very much like this poem is that it really gives a very human face to the Buddha. It gives a very human face to this path. And I think for many people it's so easy to have very kind of romanticized and idealized images of the Buddha as if he was never a person who who was never asked, as we are asked, to live in a world which so often seems to have forgotten its way. A world of conflict and war and poverty. A world of so much mistrust and fear and greed. And yet the Buddha, like us, did live in that world, in this world, in a body that could suffer, in a mind that was sometimes chaotic, in a troubled heart. And like us, as we are doing here, really tried to make sense of that world to understand what it meant to be happy, to love, to be generous, to find balance, to find freedom. And again, this poem speaks, you know, mentions the Buddha's long and difficult life, and I, I think, again, we often really do get an abbreviated version of the Buddha's life. You know, this young man who grew up wealthy, protected, decided that there must be more, put in a few pretty grueling years as an ascetic, you know, happened to land under the Bodhi tree, got enlightened and lived happily ever after. And I think it's a little bit longer story than that. The story doesn't address the journey, the journey through heartache, the journey of being challenged by injustice, by oppression, by division. The journey of not always feeling good enough, feeling lost. And I think when we read the story of the Buddhist journey, more and more we see the story, actually, of our own journey. And truly a significant piece, a significant point in that story was the Siddhartha's meeting with the heavenly messengers of aging, of sickness, of death, and of seeing a wandering ascetic. Often when we hear that story, we hear the story of how the Siddhartha's Siddhartha's father had so protected him so fiercely from anything that was at all disturbing or uh, difficult, protected him from anything that was unpleasant. I think this is really unlikely, don't you, that anyone could grow up for 20-odd years and never see a fading leaf? I suspect it's really unlikely. But when 
when Siddhartha met the heavenly messengers. I think probably, I suspect what is more true, is that there was something in his heart, something in his mind, that was really ready to be awakened. That there was some level of receptivity that allowed him to be touched deeply. And I think we see that in the questions he asked in the face of aging, and he said, will this also happen to me? In the face of death, when he said, will this also happen to me? In the face of sickness, when he said, will this also happen to me? And hearing, yes, it would. It was those questions that were so important because in that moment, I think, the beginning to see that in truth he was part of this mandala that we call life, that it did have something to do with him. Sometimes what I read into that story is that, you know, so often in our lives we take so deeply personally things that aren't personal at all, And yet, at the same time, we don't always take personally some of the things we ought to take personally, (laughs) like change and aging and sickness and death. This might actually have something to do with me. But if that was the whole story, then those messengers would be messengers of despair. And the other part of that story was seeing the, the radiant face of someone who had found a path of healing, a path of freedom, someone who is a symbol of really deep liberation. And so it was a a kind of a turning point, a beginning of a different path, rather than the path of resistance, of overcoming, of trying to transcend, kind of came full circle. And to understand that if he was going to be awakened, it would be within this life. And I find that that is a kind of timeless message. You know, in the time of the Buddha, it was a culture of transcendence. You know, and I really see this. You know, someone told me recently, working in prisons, that when they work with prisoners and they suggest that someone might try and be in the present moment, often the the response they get, why would I want to do that? You know, when life is so hard, why would I want to be in the present moment? Recently I was teaching in Cuba, and I found exactly the same thing, you know, and I encouraged people to be in the present moment. I said, you know, my life is so hard. Why would I want to do that? The transcendent model looks much more attractive, appealing. And then I think really the secret, or really the, uh, something that was so precious in this teaching, both at the time of the Buddha and perhaps now, is to understand that the classroom of our life is really the classroom of our awakening. The life that at times is challenging and difficult at times is lovely and delightful. That this is the classroom where we really learn about compassion, about freedom, about generosity, about forgiveness, 
And it begins by our willingness to be here. Really in our willingness just to be here. And perhaps really to explore what it means to awaken and to liberate the moment. Sometimes a Buddha said, so simply, I teach just one thing, that there is suffering, or there is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and that there is an end to dukkha. Pali, the language in which the early discourses were uh, recorded and spoken, it's not a language of nouns, it's a language of verbs. So it was really the verb, the verbing language I find very useful. When we speak about awakening the moment, about liberating the moment, about freeing the moment, puts it, the whole practice into something of real time rather than destinations, about where we are and how we are. First thing we need to do on a retreat, it's really simple, is to calm down. It's really simple. It's the very first thing we need to do. You know, I don't think it's always so helpful to, to begin a retreat with grand ambitions, waiting for our own Bodhi tree moment in the first day. Often we just need to calm down. You know, we need to just calm the the waves of agitation, the waves of restlessness, the hurriedness of our life, which is so internalized too, into the hurriedness of our mind and body, to calm down, to learn to find a, a, some ground, a place of confidence, a place of rest, a place of ease, a real willingness just to meet this moment as it is, and to enlighten it. And that can be hard. You know, it's hard to meet our life sometimes. Past and future are often much more familiar dwelling places for us. Skillfulness of learning just to be here is a tremendous art. To make of yourself a light. I think to really reflect on what that might mean for all of us on this retreat. I mean, on one level, it really speaks about confidence and faith in our capacities and in our path. To have confidence and faith in our capacity to be awake to forgive ourselves when we stumble, to have confidence in our capacity to meet the difficult and to embrace it with compassion, to have confidence in our own capacity to find the ways of healing suffering, not just for our own well-being, but for the well-being of all beings. I think to make of ourselves a light is also the willingness to be humbled. I, I often feel humbled in the face of my own mind. <laughs> I often feel humbled in the face of my own life. You know, what can we do but meet it? 
and to be committed to really liberating all that seems to to hinder our own capacity. To make of ourselves a light, to me, is is an invitation to really question, actually, what we're committed to. What really helps to, what might help to bring a little sanity to a world that feels often so insane. What helps to ease suffering, to bring peace and love and compassion to places where there are none. And in the context of a retreat, you know, this doesn't always mean imagining what grandiose gesture we might make. But the small acts, the small words, the small thoughts of loving kindness that bring a little light into places where there is darkness, that bring a little peace into places, inwardly and outwardly, where there is conflict, bring friendliness where there is alienation. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, it's often said, don't think that it doesn't matter. All these small acts of loving kindness and compassion, don't think that they don't make any difference. That the great oceans are filled drop by drop. I think when we consider what it means to make of ourselves of a, a light we might get a sense of what Mary Oliver speaks of in the poem, to feel ourselves turning into something of inexplicable value. This is more than just expertise in meditation. But to understand the vastness and the depth of this path of transformation... I certainly, we never teach in a way where we talk about anybody suddenly mastering a technique. Certainly I wouldn't like it to be read in my obituary that, you know, she was a great breather. (laughs) But to learn what it means really to incline our hearts and minds towards insight. We have a very wayward microphone tonight. Sinking, wandering. (laughs) But to really feel the fabric of the path. That is the invitation of this retreat, to feel the fabric of the path. The word in Pali for meditation is bhavana. Bhavana to bring into being, to bring into being. I think it's it's kind of like giving birth, bhavana, to bring into being. And the teaching and the practice is really inclined towards bringing into being all that restores respect and integrity, to bring into being all that opens our hearts, to bring into being all that calms our minds and bodies, to bring into being all that contributes to healing and to freedom. That is really the essence of everything that we will be doing on this retreat. It will be wonderful to spend the week with you, and I hope that you all have an extraordinarily rich retreat.
you might have better luck. <laughs> it's doubtful. <laughs> I have very bad microphone karma. I don't know if you do that. <laughs> All right. So I, too, would like to welcome you and to express my deep delight in um, being here with you this week. It's amazing uh, to think that Christina and I have been at this for 20 years together. You know, if I had to think of how long it's been, I might say six or seven years, something like that. Um, And I have to say, every time, as in right now, it feels so new and so fresh. And yet at the same time, it's, it's just so great to recognize our kind of family that we have here. Yeah, to to look at so many of you and know how much we've gone through together, and um, it's it's just fantastic. You know, may may we in forty years um, be sitting here. <laughs> I thought I'd really <laughs> get out there. <laughs> so it's so important how we practice, not just that we practice, but our kind of perspective or our attitude and practice. What is best is for there to be both a relaxed as well as an attentive attitude so that we're attending with care to each moment. It is true that in any retreat, ups and downs are inescapable. We really want just ups if we're going to be honest with ourselves or maybe neutrals once in a while. But the richness of a retreat is that we find ourselves more and more willing to be with the ups and the downs without leaving ourselves high and dry. we're, We're more able to accompany ourselves through thick and thin. And there's such a sense of um, inner encouragement when we find that we actually can do this. So it's not to see the downs as a mistake. It's not to see the ups as something to hold on to. It's really to recognize that we're here in life in this particular form. And so life is going to occur and express itself in a lot of different ways. We are likely to encounter peace at times, and we are quite likely to encounter the opposite of peace at times. And All of it is part of the practice. It's not other than what should be happening. But if we can bring really a measureless affection, not just affection, but really a measureless affection to whatever it is that we meet or encounter, to whatever it is that visits us, then we do find an inner delight and steadiness whatever it is that's occurring. This measureless affection allows us to not drift into blame, blaming ourselves or blaming others or blaming the environment around us. And it's really to, I think, recognize how most of us have really taken in or drunk in the message at some point or another in our lives of, original sin, of thinking that there is, we do need to blame. And if we really look into ourselves very deeply, that's actually what we'll find. Buddhism is so 
radical because we learn to actually have confidence in original goodness. So the practice is totally different because if there's any degree of even not the confidence but contemplating the possibility of inner goodness, then what our work is is simply to allow this inner goodness to reveal itself. You know, kind of hands off and not interfering and allowing that which is covering or coloring the heart to really gradually dissolve. The heart reveals itself, so in no way are we trying to get or get rid of any particular experience. There are a few forms that really support us in what we're doing this week, really support this attitude or perspective. And these forms have been used since the time of the early Buddhist nuns coming together. Because, of course, getting together in this way as women, it has a really long history to it. This happened in the Buddhist time that women got together for the sake of seeing the truth of things, seeing themselves clearly, seeing into the truth of things. And so finding particular forms that really helped. And we actually still use those forms today because they're tried and true. The forms that were used and we use today are that of silence as well as simplicity, as well as guidelines for being together in a community, otherwise known as the precepts. When we look at silence, we look at coming into this environment, and you know, there is so much noise in our usual environment. There's an increasing degree of noise. You can just have your computer on very innocently, and all of a sudden you'll hear things coming out of it. You know, you're not at the computer actually doing anything, but it's talking to you and beeping and, you know, this and that if you don't turn the sound off, which many of us find to do. There's more and more noise occurring. And inwardly, of course, we know a lot about this as well because it's really not the outer noise that makes such a difference. It's the inner noise. I was in Burma in January, and I don't think that I was... I've ever been any place noisier in my whole entire life. There was chanting, sometimes all night long, very loud, um, without ceasing, because there were a number of monasteries in that in that environment. Um, I really, I thought that it was tape recorded, but actually, people chanted <laughs> all night long uh, the same phrase over and over again. Unfortunately, I couldn't understand the phrase, but. In an environment where we come together to understand inner silence, inner peace, you know, we, we find ourselves invited here. We find ourselves called. And so even if there are noises around us, and probably there will be this week, it's not like anything's predictable, but inwardly, if we can encourage and nurture a silence, this is wonderful. And so one way that we inwardly cultivate and nourish a silence is by keeping noble silence, by not talking. And the silence is really just a reminder. Now, it's not you should sit down and be quiet and not say anything. 
it doesn't have to do with early messages we may have received in our life about how we shouldn't talk and we're making trouble when we talk. And, you know, best thing to do is to try to be invisible. Not so. The silence that is encouraged in this environment is not talking to one another so that we can hear ourselves more clearly. It's really that. So that that which is within can flower and flower fully. And so we're each one of us here on our own, and at the same time we're in community. And so to allow each one of us to flower, we support one another through silence. Of course, in taking silence to an even deeper level, we can allow ourselves to flower and thrive and hear ourselves more fully when we refrain to some degree from talking to ourselves. This can be so much louder than when we're talking to one another. So just, and it's not as if talking to ourselves is not conditioned and habitual and doesn't happen, but just to kind of notice the run-on mind when we're saying the same thing over and over again to ourselves, and we're actually demanding something of ourselves. We're actually expecting something. We're actually ordering ourselves around in some way. So to be very aware. When we do this, when we notice the ways that we talk to ourselves, we can allow for this flowering to occur and for an inner refuge to be found. Another form that we take on in this environment is that of simplicity. And of course here, it's really quite remarkable to be on retreat and to not have the usual responsibilities and obligations that most of us have quite a lot of. You know, we also in this environment aren't being entertained. So we have that whole level of entertainment that's not happening. I mean, sometimes it's so funny, everybody looking in this direction, and I'm thinking, where's the movie, you know, up here behind us? But no movie. There will not be a movie. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) It's really letting go of entertainment and usual ways that we distract ourselves and get kind of lost and lose ourselves. And so one way to encourage an inner simplicity using the simplicity of the retreat environment is to leave our history behind our history of past retreats behind. Now, some of us in this room have really long histories of past retreats, going back many years. And so it, it really takes a little bit of reflection to notice the history that one came with and then what one expects to happen because of that history, either good or bad. You know? And to see if instead we can notice this and let it be, let it go. Can you hear me? This got really low. Okay. <laughs> it's in my lap. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm almost done. Yeah. <laughs> you do? Okay. <laughs> Attacked by a microphone. Wonderful. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So when we are able to leave our history behind and our meditative history behind, 
And some of you have very little meditative history, those of you who are new, but I don't know, even if you're really new, somehow we accumulate it really quickly. You know, one half an hour sitting kind of does it. And then we have a history. So um, to see if this can be a little bit let go of so that we are free to respond with sensitivity and to meet each moment as fully as we possibly can. In this spirit, we really encourage you not to read, not to write, not to use your cell phones, to actually try to bury your cell phones and Um, I really encourage you to not pick up your messages because it's amazing what can happen to the mind when one picks up one's messages. I mean, really trust that um, any messages that you need to to get will come through the office because you you can, you know, it's it's really such an interesting thing. Everything's fine, everything's this, everything's that, but one gets a little antsy and wants to check one's messages and then it kind of all comes flooding in. So we really encourage you to bury your cell phone. This really is an invitation to look within. And it challenges our very deep belief that acting on our desires brings happiness. It does bring pleasure, but happiness perhaps is a different thing. And so it makes us more willing to see from a larger perspective if we don't act on our ways of mechanically thinking that things have to or need to be a certain way. Really, more and more receptivity and accepting what's offered. And the third form are the, is the guideline of the um, precepts, the five precepts that many of you are so familiar with. But, you know, refraining from um, destroying life in any way, from harming life in any way, even very tiny kinds of life forms. And the other side of this, of course, is to practice compassion, to to really take up the practice of compassion, to refrain from taking that which isn't offered to us, and instead to take up the practice of generosity. This is another of the guidelines. To use our sexual energies in ways that are responsible and The other side of this is responsibility and sensitivity and kindness. And in this context, of course, this means celibacy. And to really, as I said before, keep the silence. When we need to talk, to use wise speech, which means speech that is truthful and useful and kind and and non-divisive, instead of speech that is untruthful and unkind. And the last of the precepts is not intoxicating ourselves through drugs or alcohol other than what has been prescribed to you. So all of these have to do with caring, caring for the moment, caring for the body, caring for the mind. Silence, simplicity, and the precepts are all forms of caring for ourselves and caring for others, and it really creates an environment of trust and of receptivity and of deep harmony. It's a level of happiness that we already have simply by working with these particular forms. So let's move into a little bit of the formal meditative practice at this point. And what this means is a short sitting. If you could find a comfortable posture for yourself, and it will be quite short, so... 
worry about it being too long. Do you find a steadiness within your body? Do you simply know that you're sitting right now? Be aware that sitting is occurring right here and right now. Feeling your body touching the cushion, touching the chair, touching the mat, touching the bench. And grounding yourself in your body. Relaxing the body with care and attention. Relaxing the eyes, allowing the shoulders to come down. Relaxing the chest area and softening the belly. Encouraging softness and relaxation in your body right now, in your hands, in your arms. Settling into the here and now. Very gently beginning to feel your breathing, experience your breathing. Feeling your breath in your body. You can localize the breath, experience the breathing in the nose or just outside of the nose on the upper lip, in the chest area or the belly. Or just simply feel the breath in your body right now. Don't localize, don't overly focus. Just feel your breathing. Receive your breathing. In this moment, this breath. In this moment, this breath. When you find yourself not with the breath, it's just another aspect of life to be aware of. It's not better than or worse than. It's just life expressing itself in a different form. So instead of some heavy agenda, burdensome agenda. If you're not with the breath, you're practicing wrongly, which isn't true. See if when you're not with the breath, you can simply relax and be aware. Relax and observe wherever you find yourself to be. And then ground yourself once again in your body, 
in this in-breath, in this out-breath, and continuing in this way for the next few minutes.
May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings have comfort of heart. May all beings live in love and in compassion. I would like to um, introduce Maddie to my right, who has very kindly offered to um, give individual interviews throughout the week and lead some sittings. She and I have been together in different forms for 20 years as well. Ah, not so loud, huh? Um, And just to say that tomorrow the wake-up bell is at 6 o'clock, and breakfast is at 6.30. And just to really start settling into the retreat, which doesn't mean doing anything special. It actually means not doing. So really to start enjoying um, not doing and letting go, letting be. And just, just in a very gentle way, being mindful as you make your way to bed right now. All right. Sleep well, and we'll see you in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.